1969, that was a big year for a kid of 14 years old because that's when we landed a man on the moon and we also opened Neighborhood Church here on the hill. We had basically outgrown the church in Oakland. We're landlocked here. We want to reach more people, and that's going to take a leap of faith. Where are we moving to? Castro Valley. Where's Castro Valley? This used to be a quarry, and we had to get an agreement from all of these different property owners to even sell us the property to start with. And so they started doing conceptual drawings and hanging them in the lobby at the church. I remember Jake coming onto the platform one Sunday morning, and he had a shovel. And he said, we're going to be breaking ground in a month. The church was here before the freeways were completed in this interchange. The board at the time knew that those things were gonna happen and this was a strategic location. It was the cathedral at the crossroads. We had to figure out how to move all the dirt off of this hill. The Oakland Coliseum needed a lot of fill. The dirt was moved for free from here down to the Oakland Coliseum. Neighborhood church is part of the Oakland Coliseum right now. That's our dirt. When they were building the church, they were taking down some of the hill. And I remember telling my son, well, I'll never go to that church. What kind of church would ever take down a hill that God put up there? <laughs> and here we are. I believe it was on a Saturday when they were going to raise the crosses up. And I remember they were laying down out there. And I thought, man, these things are huge. It was just impressive to see a huge crane lifting those crosses up and setting them in place. The three crosses was such a rallying symbol for everyone in the church. This was going to be our mission statement. I've never seen three crosses that tall and that white against the skyline. Happy that was your church and those were your crosses. <laughs> Everything was squeaky new. Sunday school classrooms. We had the backstage area, the orchestra pit, the baptismal, the huge fly gallery that only theaters had. The first service here was thrilling. Everybody was happy and rejoicing. Oh, it was exciting. You're aware that you're starting a new chapter. They hit the ground running just like they had in the old church. The new location in Castro Valley allowed us to do everything we had done before, but at a greater level. For example, the new port call the 60-person dormitory, the gymnasium, could reach so many more servicemen for Jesus Christ. We moved here, we continued to illustrate sermons, just being able to use the stage and the lighting and the sound was so far above what we'd ever had. Oh, it was just amazing. And I had never, ever seen anything like that. Our youth ministries just took on such a, a passion to reach students. One of the most innovative evangelistic events that I think our church has ever experienced is the kickoff rallies, which was a cheerleading competition. They started in the Oakland church and they had them downstairs in the basement. They came to Three Crosses in 1969. I mean, at the height of the kickoff rally, we had as many as 32 public schools which would come up to this campus. And it was actually a U.S recognized cheerleader event. The bricks was kind of a, the stage, and then you'd have over 2,000 students. We'd bring in a professional athlete, and they'd share their testimony, and we would see hundreds indicate that they had prayed to receive Christ. This campus allowed for so many more souls to be reached for Jesus Christ. There's a, a real uniqueness about this church in that it's had so few pastors. And when there are transitions, they're beautifully done. 
Jake was an absolute evangelist. Larry continued and built on that foundation. When I came to this church, I fell in love with Jake because he was such an evangelist. And the two things in my heart were teaching the Bible and learning how to share the gospel. So he remained from even that transition, a real mentor to me about sharing Christ with people. Of course, there was a dedication and they prayed for Larry. I felt so honored and privileged to step into that. The transition between those two was just very easy. There's no hard feelings. Nobody got pushed out the door. It's all under God's direction was a really healthy church, but there was a real sense of what's next for us? What's the next mountain that we need to climb? Each one of our senior pastors is built on the legacy of the other one. I, I wouldn't think they changed it at all. They just built on top of it. We were entering a time where the culture was shifting and it was going another direction. So all the more we needed that radical love. The port was still alive, but it was dwindling and the base closures were eminent. By the time I became senior pastor, some of those bases were actually closing. And so we would show up on these bases and there'd just be a couple of people. And we'd have more workers than people that were on the base. It just became really evident that the Spirit of God was saying, this is a chapter that's closing. There's a harvest out there, but it's not here. This church has always had a heart for theatrical production. The illustrated sermons just began to dwindle, and it was obvious because people weren't coming. So when we started talking about the illustrated sermons going away, um, people kind of pushed back and were like, well, wait a minute, you know, this is the gospel. It's like, well, let's remember, the gospel doesn't change, but the methods change. And this is a method that isn't connecting with our culture. You know, we just decided to put all the eggs in the basket of these seasonal theatrical outreaches. And oh my goodness. We branched into a whole new era. Cinderella, Music Man, Seven Brides and Seven Brothers, Christmas, Easter. God just began to grow that to the point today where every single program is completely full, sold out. You can invite people to church at Christmas, but if you invite people to church to see Mary Poppins, you might get them in the seats a little before. There's nothing better than to talk to a crowd of 1,500 people, knowing that God is preparing people out there to hear the message of His Son and His love for them. Well, I guess I am the pastor who uh, made the decision to actually can the kickoff rallies. Things changed in the culture. We had gangs starting to show up, and fights were erupting, police were coming in. And at that point, I'm saying, we might want to consider not do the kickoff rally any longer. So my grandparents met at the port ministry at the Oakland location. My grandma was a hostess, and my grandpa was a sailor. It's like perfect love story. And so I grew up here going to all the different youth events. I was involved in the youth ministries. I remember playing on those bricks out front. And I remember hearing about the kickoff rallies. Then we moved into this vision for what could go on those bricks and it was the cafe. Someone threw out the idea of let's put in a coffee shop and let's do it well. I started at like the register and now I'm the ministry director for it. It started off kind of humble beginnings, just a few hours in the mornings, and then it blew up. And so it's become now this space that in the same way thousands of kids were being reached through kickoff rallies, we're seeing thousands of people every month that are coming up onto this hill, that are coming into the front door of the church, and they're experiencing the love of God and they belong uh, just over a cup of coffee.
There has been a seamless transition from pastor to pastor and ministry to ministry. There is no method of ministry that is sacred of itself. Our legacy is reaching lost people with the gospel. This is just the same spirit as what God, you know, was doing then. And we're just seeing that carrying on today. They understood the times in order to know what to do. You know, that's what the Old Testament says. And there comes a point where ministry runs its course and you look for a new way to impact the community. And the future is so bright because the history of our church has shown that God continues to show up and lead his people to make an impact in this community. As it says in the New Testament, don't attach yourself to a man. I'm not a follower of Larry. I'm not a follower of Danny. I'm a follower of Jesus. And you follow him, it'll be good. Revelations 2.10, be faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life. So now we're in a new chapter. Pastor Danny's got a message for this culture and this community. And I'm so excited to be behind him and the vision that God has for him. How did you enjoy the video series these last three weeks? Special thanks to any of you who helped us with photographs or videos or letting us rummage through all your scrapbooks or even coming up to give interviews. It's been amazing to do a deeper dive into the heart of what this place is all about. You know, we've always known that our church is special. And yet I feel like in a series like this, we got to realize why and how God has put his special touch uh, on the ministry of Neighborhood Church of Oakland and Castro Valley and now Three Crosses. Now, James Tyler, David Ledbetter have spent the last like, they've worked like 30 hours a day for the last like six months on this project. And so thanks guys for all the work that you've done in this. It's been Amazing to have this piece, not just for us in here, but to put on our website and to send out into the world and use in membership classes from here on out. It's just great to catch a glimpse of how God built this place. And my favorite part of this campus, this 2600 John Drive in Castro Valley campus, is something that no one ever, ever sees. Uh, it's, if you've ever been in the choir room, below the choir room in a cave on a wall on the concrete, there's a piece of chalk that wrote... 12-14-69, and that was uh, Stan Robinson on the first Sunday that we had a service in here, grabbed a piece of chalk and wrote that on the wall, and no one's touched it in 50 years, and so I'm always scared I'm going to smear it when I'm in there, so I just kind of, it's like I'm in a museum looking at the Mona Lisa, looking at that thing in there. It's amazing what God can do when he puts a burden on people's hearts and a vision in their mind. I listened to a podcast a few years ago by a man named Gordon McDonald, who was one of the first mega church pastors back in the 70s. And he was talking about the rise of big giant churches in America. And he made a statement that struck me when I thought about the 1969 chalk drawing on our wall. He said, before 1969, there were no mega churches. He said, all churches tended to exist in the center of cities, at the heart of a city. And so a church could reach a local community. And then in 1969, he said something changed. The United States government started putting in the interstate highway system. 
And some churches realized that the first people to the highway intersections would have the ability for the first time in 200 years to impact not just communities, but regions for the gospel from one centralized location. And so he said the megachurch movement was really a first in real estate to the crossroads. Whoever could get to the crossroads could reach millions. Man, I think about today and the strategic location God has placed us. And we're not just in the dead center of the East Bay. We're in the dead center of the Bay Area. If you look at a map from, I don't know, Napa down to Los Gatos and Monterey and all that, we are in the heart of this whole place, one of the most influential places on planet Earth. And God has appointed us to be in this place at this time. And the series that we're in in Acts chapter 17 was sparked by what Paul says in the midst of his speech on Mars Hill kind of in passing about God. I like the way that it says it in the 1984 New International Version, so I'll read the verse from there. After telling the Athenians that God made every nation from one man that they should inhabit the whole earth, he says this, and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. We've said this over and over the last few weeks. God has appointed the times and the places where each of us should live. There's no accident that our church is right here in the epicenter of the East Bay. It's no accident that you live right where you live. It's no accident that you have the family that God has given you. There's no accident that you find yourself going to work in the workplace that you have, or you find yourself in the season of life that you're in right now. It's no accident that the kids that God has given you live in your home with you. It's no accident that you have the grandchildren that you do, because God has appointed the times and the places where each of us should live. I don't know how you feel watching a video like this. I feel a lot of things. I feel joy and excitement and pride in our church. Yet I also feel a sense of pressure. I feel like I didn't tell them to make the last video this way, but I felt like the whole last video, the last like two minutes of it was all like to put a spotlight on me and saying, okay, Danny, Now what? What are you going to do with this stewardship that has been entrusted to you? And so I wanted to end our series today with with that very question, not just about me, but about all of us. The question for us today is, what will you do with the stewardship of life that God has entrusted to you? If it is true that God has appointed our church to be in this place, and he has appointed you to live in the place that you live, what will you do with the life that God has given you, one life to live on planet Earth? To do that, I want to look at this text of Scripture in Acts chapter 17. We're going to read this paragraph right in the middle of Paul's speech and close our time here this morning. This is verse 24 through 28. Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. One of my favorite questions that Jesus liked to ask people 
was the simple question, what do you want? Now, sometimes when he'd ask the question, it seemed like a, a weird one. He'd go to a man who was born blind and he'd say, what do you want? And we all know what the man wants. He wants his sight. Yeah, I think the reason that Jesus asked this question and iterations of it over and over again in his ministry is because Jesus was trying to start conversations with people about the core desires of their heart. Remember the rich young ruler? He came to Jesus and said, how can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, in short, you've read the Bible. What does it say? He said, follow the commandments. I've done that. Jesus said, well, good. Do one more thing. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, and then come follow me. You'll have treasure in heaven. And the gospel writer tells us that the man went away sad because he was of great wealth. And Jesus was not telling this man that the secret to eternal life was selling his possessions. Jesus was bringing this man down a road of questioning to draw out from him what his deepest desire was in his heart. And for this man, it had something to do with money. Then that's the reason that Jesus would come and ask people, what do you want? If you want to start to wrestle with why God has put you on this planet, one place you can start is take a walk, grab a journal, start to pray, and ask yourself, if Jesus asked me, what do you want with this life I've given you, how would you answer it? Well, chances are, if you went through that exercise, first you'd start getting some ideas about, I, I want some more money. You'd be like, no, that's not it. I want my kids to listen to me. It's like, well, maybe that's it. <laughs> it's probably deeper than that. I want to retire at 30, right? Why? And as you start to wrestle through those things, you start realizing, okay, there's something deeper. There's something more substantial. There's an undercurrent, a foundation of your life. There's something that is your chief desire. And I think this is what Jesus is trying to draw out of people when he asks them questions. And I think that's what he would try to draw out of you if you engaged with him at the what do I want level is what is the chief desire of my heart? How have I been crafted by God? In our society... It seems like people believe that the way to find fulfillment in this world is to identify who you are in here, embrace it, walk in it, and find life in it. All right, so if you, if you discover that your chief desire is to be rich, if you embrace it, you run after it, you go for it, you'll find fulfillment in that. And that's why we geek out on personality studies in our culture. That's why we love to find out, if I, am I an introvert or an extrovert, right? Where do I land on the Myers-Briggs, the Strengths Finders, the Enneagram, right? All these different personality tests because I think we've bought that idea that if we could just identify who we are in here and we could pull it out and look at it and embrace it and walk in it, maybe then we will find fulfillment. Well, no, okay, God made me to be an introvert, so I'm going to hide from people and then I'll be happy. I think this is why our culture is so consumed around the conversation of identity, gender identity, sexual identity. Because we believe that if we just identify who we are on the inside, we'll find fulfillment if we walk in it. And so the chief sin of the American culture right now is quenching someone's identity because that's how we believe life is found, by walking in the identity that you have in here. This concept actually comes from ancient Greece. And back before Paul was in Athens, the community of the Greek people a few hundred years before Jesus kind of lived their life as the first people who were postmodern in a sense. They believed there was no objective truth. 
And what they mean by, meant by that was that each of us have our own unique experiences. We're all knit in our own individualized ways. And so the Greeks believed that if we want to find happiness in this life, we can only find that by embracing the uniqueness of who we are as individuals. Now, Socrates was the one who would start to teach the people that you will be happy if you embrace what makes you truly unique. So that as folks started wrestling with where the gods fit in into all this and the whole Greek god world, there was this idea that the gods exist to give us something about our lives that we can't get otherwise. That there's this glimpse of something more than just what meets the eye and if we can grapple with it and hold on to it, maybe then we'll be happy. And so the whole Greek culture was finding gods that can give you the things that, that make you happy, right? Or, or finding the gods who are mad at you and keeping you down and finding ways to sacrifice them to keep them off your back. So the whole Greek life was one that was set up to help people identify what they wanted and then get it because they truly believed that if they got it, they'd be happy. Not much has changed in 2,000 years. And this is the culture that Paul has to stand up and address and pitch Jesus towards. And I think what the people, we've talked about this before, were expecting is that he would say, hey, try Jesus. He'll give you something that the other gods aren't giving you yet. Right? There's the God of the rain. There's the God of the sea. There's the God of the mountains. There's the God of your livestock. Right? But Jesus, he's the God of X, Y, Z. And if you adopt him into your life, he'll give you all this other stuff too. Right? Or maybe Paul would come and say, Jesus is mad at you. That's why you're not making enough money. Give him some money. He'll get off your back. You'll make some more money, right? That, that Jesus would kind of fit into their system. And then people could start to worship Jesus alongside everything else. But Paul got up on Mars Hill and he knew that in a culture like that, he had his work cut out for him. Because Jesus had no desire to come alongside everything else in people's lives. Jesus wanted to replace the very core of their existence. And we see this in a, a seemingly mundane phrase that Paul says. He, there's a quote here in verse 28. It says, in him we live and move and have our being. And it seems like he's just saying, okay, God is the one who's the source of our life. And yet this is actually part of a bigger quote that was widely known in the Greek culture. And I'll read the whole thing to you. Tell me who this reminds you of. The quote says this, they fashioned a tomb for you, holy and high one, but you are not dead. You live and abide forever. For in you we live and move and have our being. It sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Well, this is not a quote about Jesus. This is a quote about Zeus. This philosopher wrote to the Cretan culture and said, you built a tomb for Zeus as if he was dead. Zeus is not dead. Zeus is alive. In fact, Zeus is the very source of our existence. So Paul stands up on Mars Hill and says, hey, you know how you believe Zeus is the very source of your existence? You got his name wrong. It's Jesus. And he starts pulling out kind of the central processing unit of their entire culture in order to replace it with a new one. And Paul was not the only person in the New Testament to do this. It seems like this was actually how, how the apostles wrestled with living in a Greek world. The Greeks had this concept called the divine logos, uh, which was this idea that God is transcendent, he's invisible, you can't touch him, he's out there somewhere, and yet the first glimpses that human beings have of God 
is the logos. It's kind of the reason for, for existence. There's this premise, the initial premise that we can see with our own eyes is the logos of God. And so John writes his gospel, and in the first verse of the first chapter, he says, in the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. The logos was with God in the beginning. And then he moves on to say, and the logos put on flesh and dwelt among us. So it's this glimpse of the divine, this human aspect of who God is, it's not a premise it's not a thought experiment. It's God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the reason for being. You know, they called this first glimpse of God the, the firstborn of God. And, and gospel writers started to pick up on this concept too. Paul in, in Colossians kind of goes against a, a quote in the Greek day. This is the quote from Philo. Philo was a Jewish Greek person Philo said, the logos of the living God is the bond of everything. He's not talking about Jesus here. He's not a, a Christian person. The logos is the bond of everything, holding all things together and binding all the parts and prevents them from being dissolved and separated. And Paul in Colossians says, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. That's Colossians. What the apostles were doing throughout the scriptures and what the apostles were doing when they'd stand up in front of a Greek culture is they'd say, in order to follow Jesus, we need to remove everything from the way that you view this world and replace it with one thing, Jesus. Jesus has to be your source. Jesus has to be your reason for living. Jesus has to be the very foundation of your life. He's not just another silo in your life. Right, where you have your physical fitness and your nutritionist and your mental health stuff and you've got your work stuff and your personal development and your leadership strategic stuff and then you've got the spiritual component, you call him Jesus. That's not how Jesus works. Jesus replaces everything else. He's a firmware upgrade. He changes the very core of your life and from him, everything emanates therefrom. What that means, is, if you took some time this week to answer the question, what do you want? And you came up with something that really encapsulated your worldview in a sentence? If that phrase is not primarily about Jesus at its core, there is a strong chance that you do not yet understand what it means to be a Christian. Because Christians are people who have had their entire system replaced with Jesus instead. That was a scary thought. Maybe you've been in church for a long, long time and you're starting to think, am I really a Christian? And that is exactly how the biblical authors describe conversion. It's the idea of replacing your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. It's the idea of replacing your old affections, your old lusts, your old desires, the old drive that you used to have. The Bible calls those idols, replacing those with Jesus instead. And from this place of Jesus at your foundation, you have new desires, renewed focus, a change in mind about things, and a new foundational reason for being. As Jesus comes to you and says, what do you want? What do you want? And some of us, what we want is Jesus. And we've wrestled with that. We know that. We follow him. And really, our struggle is not is he the foundation of my life? For some of us, the struggle is, 
I, I want to use this life that he has given me for his glory, and I don't know how. Yeah, that's how I feel sometimes when I watch a video like this. Oh, no, what do I need to do? <laughs> These people have done such great work in building such a great church, and now it's time for me to stand up and give a motivating, rallying speech about the next big thing. What's that big thing? If your life is a stewardship, if God has given you a place to live and a money in the bank or kids in your home or friendships, relationships, work colleagues, he's given you all of this for his glory and your job is to steward that for good, where do you start? If someday you're going to have to stand before God and be accountable for the way that you used the resources he gave you, what can you do for the next five years, 20 years, 50 years, 80 years of your life that have the best potential to maximize the return on the investment that God has put in your hands. I'm scary. There's a lot of things that we can do. There's a lot of things we want to do, and we're scared we're not going to be allowed to do it if we follow Jesus. There are some things that we know God has called us to do, but we don't know if we could pull it off. There's sometimes where we feel like we just want to do something big for God, but we don't know what it is. We wish you would just tell us what's the big thing that you have for me. And yet when Jesus taught his disciples about the best way to live their lives, he, he never talks about running after big ideas for God, as far as I can think of. He, he doesn't say, hey, here's a bunch of stuff. Don't screw it up, right? He kind of says that sometimes. Right? He talks about this idea of the talents and your job is to steward these things and maximize the return. But then whenever he starts talking, talking about how to get a return, a kingdom return on the investment that God has put in you. He never talks about your ideas or your efforts or your vision. He always takes it from a different angle. You know, the analogy that he gives to the disciples the night that he was betrayed was a, a grapevine. He says, I, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Remember that? If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And Jesus said, you are going to be accountable for the life that you've lived, and you're going to be accountable for how you steward the things that I've given you. And then he says, now here's what you need to do. This is John 14, or 15, verse 4. Here's the key to a fruitful life, Jesus says. Remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. 500 years ago, when, when the church leaders tried to quantify what it means to, to be a Christian, they, they didn't say that the Christian's job is to give God glory by doing great things for him. They said that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And somehow what God has set us to do on this earth is to bring him glory by finding our fulfillment in him, our life in him, our ministry, our satisfaction, our fruitfulness in him and him alone. And Jesus would say this to people all the time in John 6. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. You know, we think about belief as the thing that starts the Christian life, and now it's up to us to finish it. Yet the author of Hebrews calls Jesus the author and the perfecter of our faith. Even Paul, when he's talking about not being ashamed of the gospel, he says, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, sometimes we read that, we think, okay, well, we're not going to go to hell because we have faith. That's not what he's saying. 
He's saying that the operating premise for a Christian's life is faith, that by faith will the righteous live their lives. That every decision we make is by faith. Every growth that happens in our life is by faith. It's by abiding in Jesus, clinging to him, does the fruit grow. I think that's what Paul is getting at when he says, in him we live and move and have our being. If you're alive today, it's because God has given you life. If you're mobile today, it's because God has given you the ability to move. If you have a brain and you're thinking about what you want to do and you're wrestling with how to live in your life and exist on planet Earth because God has given you that capacity and what he calls you to do with that capacity is go back to him, cling to him, and see what emerges as you abide in Christ. A few years ago, I sat down with Butch Monk, who was on this video a lot, and kind of in anticipation for, for the next season of ministry, I started getting nervous, like, what, what happens if someday we get to a place that we don't know what's next as a church? Like, the illustrated sermons finished, and we replaced them with the Christmas musicals. The, the kickoff rallies finished, and, and we replaced them with the Cafe on the Bricks, right? The, the port finished, and we started to look towards other places that we could reach out to people. I asked Butch, what, how do we know what the next big thing is? And Butch said, you know what, we... We've never really identified next big things around here. Is it kind of the way that things have always worked is that somebody has an idea and it's almost like they have this seed and they plant it in a little pot. And sometimes nothing happens. But other times the seed starts to grow. And as it starts to grow, we realize we need a bigger pot for it. And so we put it in a bigger pot. And then it starts to grow. And then we need a bigger pot. That's kind of what he said even in the video today, right? We, we opened this facility and we had the biggest pot we ever had to put this new big plant in that had been growing and growing and growing. He said, I know there's something big that we've never thought of before out there. He said, but if I were to guess where it's going to come from, I would guess that it's already planted somewhere in a small pot and we're just going to replant it into a bigger one later. And for me, that kind of took the pressure off. <laughs> And I hope that does for you in your life too. Now, as you strive to follow after Jesus, your job in this world is not to think of cool ideas for God. God's got enough cool ideas. He can give them to you when he wants to. Your job is to stay connected to Jesus Christ, to be mindful of him as you live life on this planet day by day. And sometimes he'll give you ideas. Sometimes he'll give you opportunities. Sometimes you'll turn around five years later and look back and think, how did all this happen? Regardless of how it happens, when you cling to him, fruit is born. And if you want to steward the life that he has given you well, you can steward that life by abiding in the vine, clinging to Jesus, holding fast to him, and letting his spirit be the one who drives you and does the work through you to impact the world wherever he's placed you for his glory in this time. As we finish this series and we move into the next. I don't want you all coming to church every week just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like, when's that big idea coming? And one of the things that I love about the way that Larry has done ministry these last 23 years is he doesn't feel like a visionary to me. Like we were worked, we've worked together for 19 years, and I've always wondered, like, man, when are we going to get the big idea? When's the big idea coming? When's the big idea coming? I feel like we don't do anything around here, right? And then I turn around and look at what has changed over the last 23 years. I'm like, when did all this stuff get here? When did all these people show up? 
Like, when did this cafe get here? When did these buildings emerge? When did this ministry start? When did this program start? When did we start reaching homeless people? When did all these amazing things start? And I realized there was never a big, we don't have like a, a ministry accelerator around here and people are giving pitches, right? That's not how it works. God grows his church and we are faithful to steward what he has entrusted to us and make one wise decision after another as we listen to his spirit. And a lot of times we are very surprised at the amazing work that he does, sometimes through us and sometimes in spite of us. And I believe that that can happen in your life, in your neighborhood, in your homes as well. Let me pray for us and we'll close our series this morning.